you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. The police have a tip that he sailed for Peru. Information received puts him in Utah, too. They're dragging the river and combing all queens with a net. He's an armonk, likewise New Orleans. An important anonymous telephone call says he's here, merely here, and no address at all. East side and west side, the town all around, persuasive, ubiquitous, and yet unfound. Is this fellow distinguished by having the quaint gift of being at once several places he ain't? Unnamed newspaper editor satirizing the search for Robert Irwin. This is episode 59, and this is the conclusion of The Maniac of Beekman Hill. Matchin once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. Before I start today's episode, I have a few updates to my episode on Monty the Monster, which was only a few weeks ago. I found a few more articles about strange sightings in that area. In the Reading Times for February 17, 1930, is an article about some sort of animal, said to be a coyote, that was killed near the tiny village of Black Horse on the farm belonging to Lewis Miller. Black Horse is very near Parksburg the suburb of Coatesville where Sylvester Scott saw the leaping, screaming animal two years later. The other article was from the Pottstown Mercury for January 24, 1949. A carpenter named Dewey Shifley was working on a state hospital in Emeryville when he saw some sort of panther-like animal. Now, I'm not sure what town exactly they mean by Emeryville, but I wonder if he was doing work at the Emeryville State Hospital. Anyway, on with today's. Since this is the second part of the two-part series on the murders of Mary and Veronica Gedeon and their, bur- and their boarder Frank Burns on East 53rd Street in New York, you should probably go back and listen to the first part if you haven't already. I didn't really mention it in the last episode, but all the events that took place in that happened in the, in the space of about a week. The bodies of the three individuals were found on March 27, 1937, and police, while aware of Robert Irwin from early on in the investigation, had only announced they were seeking him for questioning on April 5th. Ethel Kudner had confirmed to police what they had already suspected from hints they read in Ronnie's diary, that she was friendly with with Robert Irwin and that he had sought a relationship with her. She claimed he abandoned these prospects once she had become engaged to Joseph Kudner. On April 5th, Lieutenant Thomas Martin of the Homicide Division held a press conference at the East 51st Street Station. 
We now have a definite suspect in the Gideon murder, he announced. His name is Robert Irwin. We're more interested in him than in any man we've questioned in the case. The announcement swiftly made its way into the press. And with that announcement, the public became aware of a case that the police had been quietly building for a few days. Joseph Gedeon's release from police custody coincided with the positive identification of the palm and fingerprints found in the apartment with those of Robert Irwin, the former boarder who had stayed with the Gedeons twice in 1932 and 1934. I'm a bit unclear as to whether the identification led the police to abandon the case against Joseph Gedeon for the triple murder or whether it was merely a coincidence of timing. But from that time until the press conference held two days later, the police learned most of the information on Robert Irwin that I'll go into later, but for now, suffice it to say that the man had severe anger control issues, among others. By this time, also, the police had made a trip to Canton in upstate New York, where Irwin had attended St. Lawrence University Theological School and also helped teach sculpting to the other students. Here, he had boarded in the house of a Mr. and Mrs. Benjamin Hosley at 36 State Street. In his rooms here, which he had vacated just days before on March 24th, police found a notebook full of writings praising a woman named Ethel, whose true identity by now was obvious. It confirmed the story Ethel had told them about her and Irwin's friendly relationship, though it turned out she had left out a bit. He had actually proposed to her, but she had had to tell him that she was already engaged. The notebooks also contained ominous messages. If only Ronnie and Mrs. G hadn't interfered. How I hate Ronnie and her mother for what they have done to me. Acquaintances at the university said that Robert Irwin carried an 8-inch sculptor's chisel around at nearly all times. One student, by the way, that Irwin met and became friends with while at St. Lawrence was Izzy Dembski, whose actual name was Isser Danielovich, son of two Russian immigrants. In later years, he was to become quite famous after he had changed his name to Kirk Douglas. In fact, for his Academy Award-nominated turn as Vincent Van Gogh in 1956's Lust for Life, he drew on his recollections of Irwin. But not everyone was as convinced of Irwin's guilt as were the police, including Ethel Kudner. Speaking to police again when she retrieved her sister's dog from the ASPCA, where it had been taken after the murders, she said that based on her experience, she found it hard to believe that he was the killer. He might have killed me, she said, but he had no reason to kill Ronnie or my mother. But Robert Irwin definitely did have reason, at least to be angry with the two, as the notebooks found in the Canton boarding house revealed. Dr. Russell E. Blaisdell, the superintendent of Rockland State Hospital near Orangeburg, told him the same. Irwin had been institutionalized there in 1933. He felt that although Irwin, in his experience, did indeed have trouble controlling his emotions and a vicious temper, this temper of his cooled off in a flash. After an outburst, he was extremely remorseful. I just can't visualize him as being connected with the Gideon murders. The Gideon murders were done by a crafty fiend who lay in wait. Irwin could never have lain in wait. He wouldn't have been able to control himself, and if he had done such a thing, he would have been sorry afterwards. He wouldn't hide. He would try to find someone to unburden himself to. Also on April 5th, Commissioner Louis J. Valentine issued an order that posted police at all the exits from the city, all tunnels, bridges, and roads. 
20,000 men were detailed to take part in the search for the suspected murderer. This included every detective employed by the NYPD. He also issued a warning to police in New Jersey, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Delaware, Rhode Island, and Massachusetts. In addition to Irwin's physical appearance, he advised, Irwin is a sculptor, but may be employed in taxidermy work or decorative flower establishments. Kindly make inquiries at art clubs and such places where he might seek employment. Lodges in cheap rooming houses and was formerly an inmate of the Rockland State Insane Asylum. Maybe hitchhiking to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, or Washington, D.C. Also check the morgues for the suicides and give this case the necessary attention. They had also learned that on March 24th, he had taken a room in the house of a Mrs. Flug at 218 East 53rd Street, very near the Gedeon House, before leaving there and taking a rear-facing attic room at a boarding house belonging to a German couple named Charles and Matilda Ottberg at 248 East 52nd Street. They learned that Irwin had stayed here for a week since the triple murder and had vacated the premises only moments before their arrival there on April 3rd. It was thought that, as the Ottberg house was near the East 51st Street police station, he had noticed the activity of the police mobilizing and left before they could get to the house. Both Ottbergs had noticed how strangely Irwin had acted, for he forbade either of them from entering his room. On April 6th, the day after the announcement, Joe and Ethel Kudner were urged to stay somewhere else until Irwin was caught. There was real fear that as she was apparently the object of Irwin's obsessions, that he might strike at the Kudner home, which was at 3033 29th Street in Astoria, Queens. Lincoln Hauser, Ronnie's fiance, also left the city and was thought to be bound for France. From the moment it was announced that the police were definitively seeking the former border, the nation became almost hyper-vigilant. Countless sightings of persons thought by witnesses to resemble Irwin were made up and down the East Coast. In New York City, he was seen panhandling on the streets of Manhattan and dancing naked on a fire escape. A man who was, quote, acting strange was sought by Sheriff Ernest Schoenfeld near Woodstock, New York. He could have been a man on a ship called the Kent, which was bound from Boston to Baltimore. Maybe he was the Baltimore man who was pawning rings and who, quote, seemed demented. Or maybe he was the man seen in Wollaston, Massachusetts, driving a car with New York license plates, or another odd New Yorker seen in Everett in the same state. A man hitching a ride to Brooklyn was arrested in Quarryville, Pennsylvania, under suspicion of being the killer, but he proved to be a native New Yorker named Thomas Govern. Another man named Eugene Ferris, hitchhiking near Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania, was thought to be Irwin, as was a hitchhiker picked up near Scranton and taken to Battle Creek, Michigan. He had had a ring with the letters R.I. on it, after all. An odd man was seen in New Jersey, knocking on doors and seeking rooms to rent in both Red Bank and Rumson. A minor mystery presented itself when the Brooklyn Eagle received an anonymous telephone call giving the address of a boarding house on Putnam Avenue. It claimed that a man named Adams was there, Adams apparently being an alias used by Irwin in the past. When police went there, though, they found that there was no border by that name actually there. But the landlady had received a letter addressed to a man named Adams. The same man called back and left a phone number at which he could be reached, 
and said that Irwin was in Kings County Hospital. He wasn't, and when the newspaper called the number and tried to set up a meeting with the mystery man, he didn't appear. However, by a few days after the announcement, with no sightings of Irwin forthcoming, the vigilance waned. By now desperate, the NYPD made a sweep of the Bowery, gathering homeless men and checking fingerprints to see if any of them were Irwin. On April 26th, a policeman named John Whalen led an investigation checking luggage at Grand Central Station to see if any had been left behind by the killer. As luck had it, they located a suitcase held shut with a belt, matching the description of one the Ottbergs had said Irwin carried. Popping the case open, they found sketchbooks, business cards bearing the name Robert Irwin, a collection of newspaper clippings chronicling the investigation of the Gideon murders, and a small cheap clock with glowing hands, answering the description of the one Lucy Biacco had said was stolen from the murder scene. The rest of April passed uneventfully, and except for a sighting in Oklahoma, so did May. Despite the efforts of so many police officers, there was still no sign of the murder. None, that is, until June 23rd. On that date, a young woman named Henrietta Koskiansky, employed in the kitchens of the Statler Hotel in Cleveland, Ohio, was reading the July 1937 issue of Inside Detective, the magazine for which Veronica Gedeon had posed so often. This issue, with a bright red cover, featured an article on the Gedeon murders, with a prominent photograph of the still uncaptured Robert Irwin. With the magazine's editor, Wes Peterson, still being involved in getting justice for Ronnie's killer, the magazine offered a reward of $1,000 for any person responsible for the capture of the killer. Two days later, on June 25th, Koskiansky confronted a hotel employee named Robert Murray, who she felt resembled Irwin. He told her he was not Irwin, of course, and she went off to show the magazine photo to some co-workers and ask their opinions. The hotel manager called the police, who soon arrived. But though he was not Irwin, according to him, Murray was gone when they arrived. On June 26, the offices of the Chicago Herald and Examiner received an unexpected phone call. It was Robert Irwin. He stated that he was ready to give himself up, agreeing to give the newspaper an exclusive interview. Within a short time, the mad sculptor, as he was known, was in custody the nearly three-month-long manhunt was over. Born Fenelon Arroyo Seco Irwin on August 5, 1907, he entered the world in a revival tent near Pasadena, California. He was the youngest of three children born to Benjamin Harden Irwin, who was a bigamist Pentecostal minister who deserted his wife when the future killer was only three years old and his wife, Mary, who was a religious zealot who, it was said, virtually abandoned regular family life to follow the Lord. Both parents were afflicted with syphilis due to Benjamin's womanizing ways, although his mother told a story that it had been given to her by a slave mistreated by her family. And all three sons, Vidalin, Fenelon, and Pember, had congenital syphilis. It was said that young Fenelon was, quote, intensely devoted to his mother, and from an early age, religion fascinated and in some way terrified him, thanks to his mother's almost constant attendance at the Azusa Street Mission. Led by a preacher named William J. Seymour, 
the young boy here encountered speaking in tongues, fervent belief in miracles, and other religious phenomena. Erwin himself would later recall his mother. She became oblivious of her growing needs. So we were reared in squalor, undernourished, poorly clothed, and our housing was merely a shelter. Our life was drab, insecure, deprived of the natural life of a child. Mother had her religious emotions to sustain her, while we had but empty stomachs to go to bed on. Both Vidalin and Pember were delinquents, whereas Fenelon was a voracious reader. Somewhere in his early teens, traits began to be noticed in the young boy that would plague him later in life as Robert Irwin. Inattentiveness and a vicious temper directed mainly towards those who he perceived as looking upon him as weak. He also confronted his mother about her religious habits, and in July 1919, when the boy was not yet 12, his mother pleaded to the courts that she was unable to care for him. By default, he was sent to a juvenile det detention facility, both of his brothers being there already, and as he was to later say of, her mo of his mother, now she had more time to serve the Lord. Around this time, he began sculpting. First, he was sent to the Strickland home for boys near Glendale, where his younger brother Pember was staying. Within a day, he had gotten in several fights, and he and his brother ran away. They were returned to the facility, but Fenelon kept getting in increasingly violent fights, and by March 1920, he was removed from the home. He was then sent to the Whittier Reform School, where his other brother was. Vidalin had been charged with vagrancy and public nuisance, but in the Reform School, claimed he had taken part in several robberies as well. A volatile inmate like Fenelon had been, he assaulted others and was held in solitary and confinement quite often. Anyway, here Fenelon was a model inmate, and by October he was released and took Pember with him to Portland, Oregon, where they were to meet back up with their mother. In 1921, he quit school after the seventh grade. He began to work at a Portland department store, from which job he was fired the next year in what was, in what was to become a pattern after beating a co-worker severely. It was around this time that he began to develop his theory of what he called visualization, in which he could conjure a sculpture or other artwork from memory and replicate it. To this end, he began to memorize works of art. As Irwin described visualization, that's when the whole thing came to me in full force. The reason people have so much difficulty in doing things is that they have such a hard time getting things into their head. You have to visualize first. Before a sculptor can make a statue, he has to make a mental statue. And the reason that even the greatest sculptor has such a difficult time making a statue is because he doesn't get it clearly in his mind first. He had also begun reading the works of the so-called great agnostic, Robert Ingersoll, and soon the boy, never strongly religious like his parents, began to become actively atheistic. As his mother said of him, Fenelon is my child, and has some good qualities, but he is brimful of poison. He's an atheist, and well-versed in that pernicious literature. Pember is just as easily influenced as can be, toward the good or toward the evil. Just a little association with Fenelon will ruin him forever. Pember was obviously influenced more toward the evil, as his mother would say, since he was put into the Oregon State Training School for boys after being caught stealing. Fenelon soon got another job, but like before, he was fired due to starting fights. 
Again, his mother left the children, and Fenelon also was put into the Oregon State Training School for Boys, joining his brother. His tendency toward violence seemed to increase, as he began squabbling with another inmate, a boy named Danny. Danny actually needed to be put in the infirmary after a severe beating at the hands of Fenelon. While in the reform school, Irwin built what he termed a visualization machine. Something like a metronome, it was meant to aid him in concentration and in attaining the meditative state needed for his visualization. When he got out of the school in 1926, word soon reached them that Benjamin Harden Irwin had died in Georgia. The trigger for his anger progressed. In addition to perceived weakness, he now flew into a violent rage if he thought anyone thought him to be homosexual. He also decided that he was going to rename himself after the, after the so-called great agnostic, and henceforth be known as Robert Irwin. He came home one day to find his mother burning all his books, whereupon he left the home, for good this time. He made his way to Los Angeles, where he was soon arrested after beating a barber who he thought had made homosexual advances toward him. Soon afterward, he entered the employ of Carlo Romanelli, who was creating props for use in the movies of the day. Romanelli said Irwin was talented, although he had, quote, a vicious temper, maniacal, as he put it. And he wasn't shy about preaching to the other sculpting assistants about his practice of visualization and the benefits it could offer the artist. The sculptors of today think the only way to develop artistic talent is to practice drawing and modeling from the nude. They don't realize that artistic genius resides not in the hand, but in the brain, and that by all this modeling and drawing, they're using material methods to remedy a mental fault. I say, why not get at the heart of the trouble from the start and develop your mental sight by practicing visualization? If St. Gaudens only had, could have gotten his mental picture clear, he could have finished his memorial in two or three days instead of 14 years. I mean to be able to get my mental picture clear. And then I'll be able to do things no sculptor has ever dreamed of. I'll be able to make a bust of somebody I haven't seen for years just by copying my mental picture of that person. And I'll do it so fast that Michelangelo himself would say to me, how the hell did you do that? But after once again fighting with several of the assistants, Romanelli was con compelled to let Irwin go. Irwin did some random jobs for a few years, sculpting wax figures for Catherine Stuberg who sculpted waxworks for several Hollywood museums and displays, and who later went on to work on the movie House of Wax and doing decorative plaster work, before, in 1929, going to Chicago to work under the famed sculptor Laredo Taft, who had done work for the 1893 Chicago World's Fair, so infamous among true crime buffs. Under Taft, Robert Irwin was to enjoy his greatest amount of success, sculpting busts of German boxer Max Schmeling and Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was not yet president, for various occasions, and even making a bust of Herbert Hoover for the White House. He took a room in the, in the house of Laredo Taft's stepmother, and here he also took up boxing. The sport suited him well, eager to fight as he was, and with as short a temper as he had. Sometime over the summer, he met a girl named Alice Ryan. In late 1929, she agreed to marry Robert Irwin, who, as could be expected, fully explained his theory of visualization to her. The theory had evolved over the past few years. Now he felt the human brain was akin to an out-of-tune radio which picked up only static, 
and via visualization, it could be fine-tuned to receive a clear signal. Everyone's read Shakespeare. How much do you remember? Very little. And yet it's all there, right in your head, every line, every word, every syllable. And let me tell you, once you learn to visualize, you'll be able to go to bed at night and lie there in the dark and open Hamlet or Macbeth or Othello in your mind and read the whole damn thing with your eyes closed. And what's more, you'll be able to see those plays enacted in your mind. Those characters will step forth in living projected reality and play their parts like actors on a stage, only with infinitely greater artistry and majesty and power. Arthur Halliburton, the younger brother of a friend of his from back in Los Angeles, moved into the Taft's house with Irwin shortly after his engagement to Alice Ryan. At first, the two got along fairly well, although, as Halliburton recalled, he always talked about himself to the exclusion of any other subject. He was a complete egomaniac. On one occasion, when Irwin was talking about his artistic work, he felt that Arthur wasn't impressed enough with his genius. Arthur later said that, Irwin had no imagination, none whatsoever. That was his whole problem. He could imitate things. He couldn't create things. Eventually, Halliburton came upon Irwin drying laundry in the oven. When he told Irwin that he didn't really think that was the greatest idea, he was beaten so badly that the floor of the kitchen became covered in blood and several neighbors needed to get involved. Halliburton ran out and moved into a hotel. Of the other sculptors in Taft's studio, none of them would speak to Irwin after that. He soon left Taft's employ, seeking a job at a small company called United Press Products that made cheap souvenir items. He tried to continue his bust making, however, on one occasion even going so far as to phone gangster Al Capone, who was not yet jailed for tax evasion. Capone refused, though, as he was just about to leave Chicago for his home in Miami. By 1930, as should come as no surprise, he was fired from his latest job for, you guessed it, fighting. But this time, instead of just a fellow employee, he beat up his supervisor, saying, quote, he wanted to boss me around and butt into my business. In August of that year, he pulled up roots and left Alice to go to New York City. Shortly after arriving, however, he was yet again jailed for beating up a taxi driver. There was a taxi driver, and he was bigger than me, and he was just a big pile of crap. We had an argument about the fare, and he said to me, You goddamn little pansy, I'll smack your face if you don't come across with the money. So I said, Why the hell don't you try to? We got out the cab, and he tried to hit me in the face, and I only hit him once in the face, and I was never so astonished in my life because he was so big, and he just turned around and ran like Holy Moses all the time yelling, Help! Finally, I caught him by the coattails and he started yelling like hell. A cop came and he had me arrested. Almost immediately, he managed to find employment at the studios of Alexander Edel, making full-size bronze casts of plaster sculptures, but was fired almost right away. It was around this time, January 1931, that he first read references to the works of German philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer. Schopenhauer, at least insofar as Irwin understood it, incorrectly, of course, led him to a belief that sexual drive was only a distraction from his quest for visualization. He broke off the engagement with Alice. His ideas on visualization progressed, and he now began to feel that by removing the sexual component from his life and freeing up all that energy, 
He could achieve truly great, almost supernatural things through visualization. He could gain telepathy, heightened senses, the ability to change his form at will. And it was at this point that the Robert Irwin who would become national news a few years later really began to emerge. He began work in a taxidermy shop which did quite a bit of business for the New York Museum of Natural History. Both brothers were by this time serving time in Oregon State Prison, Fidalen for auto theft and Pember for armed robbery and assault with a deadly weapon. Irwin soon moved out of Manhattan and into a cheap boarding house in Brooklyn. He was laid off from his job as a taxidermist, not because of fighting this time, but just because it was the Depression. Irwin spiraled into a depression as well, and on September 5, 1931, he admitted himself to Kings County Hospital, complaining of headaches and blurred vision. When it was discovered that he was syphilitic, and that the disease was progressing, he merely replied that he knew he had it, and refused to take the antibiotics they prescribed for his illness. On October 5th, he came back to Kings County Hospital, this time being admitted to the psychiatric ward. He had begun to entertain thoughts of suicide, but it was indirect suicide. I thought I would kill her, meaning the old woman with whom he boarded, and go to the electric chair. After several weeks, he was discharged on October 26th and sent to the Burke Foundation in White Plains, a convalescent hospital, and it was here he first met Chuck Smith. In July 1932, he left the Burke Foundation and found a job back in the city washing dishes at the New York City Supreme Court building. However, he could find no reliable place to live. He took rooms in a number of cheap flop houses and for a while was actually homeless, living in the homeless encampment or Hooverville in the Central Park. Then, in October of that year, he once again came across Chuck Smith, who by this time had also left the Burke Foundation and was rooming with a family on East 53rd Street named the Gedeons. Here, obviously, is the first point where the story intersects the one in episode one. So in part one, I mentioned his being hospitalized only a week after he moved in. What I left out was the reason he was hospitalized. Late at night, one night, a week after moving in, he went into the Gedeon's bathroom, took a razor blade, and attempted to castrate himself. Using the name James Adamson, he went to Bellevue Hospital at about 2.30 a.m. and explained to doctors what he had been trying to do, and asked them if they would finish the job. The doctor on duty merely bandaged the injury and told him to come back the next day. He did. The second doctor sutured the wounds, and once again, Irwin asked him to finish the job. It was at this point that he was sent to the psychiatric ward. Here, he persisted in trying to get himself castrated for weeks, and it was here he met with Frederick Wortham, who, two decades before he condemned the comic book industry in his book Seduction of the Innocent, was one of Robert Irwin's principal psychiatrists. Wortham was also one of the psychiatrists who attempted to get Albert Fish sent to an asylum rather than execute it so that his pathology could be studied in depth. Although it seemed that he was getting past his fixation on emasculating himself, Irwin's rage was no better. At one point he beat a fellow inmate who knocked a sculpture of his off the table, and on another, an orderly who attempted to shave him. On March 17, 1933, he was discharged from Bellevue, but admitted to Rockland State Hospital in Orangeburg. 
There aren't really any surviving records of his time at Rockland, but it was rumored that his temper hadn't really gotten any better, and that he stayed in a single room, unlike most inmates who slept in the communal wards. This was probably, in my opinion, due to his temper and outbursts of rage. It's also known that he was allowed to pursue his sculpting on the recommendation of Dr. Wortham, and that he made several escape attempts. Irwin was diagnosed with hebephrenia, a form of schizophrenia. But nonetheless, Irwin was discharged on May 16, 1934 as much improved, a misdiagnosis that was to prove fatal. In June of that year, he went to work at Chelsea Realistic Products, owned by sculptor Gilbert Moggy, where he sculpted it in plaster, and it was in July he returned to board with the Gedeons once more. Joseph was gone by this time, and it was just the three women. He had left the Gedeons the second time after staying there several weeks, after he proposed to Ethel and was rebuffed. In October 1934, he got into a fight with Gilbert Moggy after he attempted to fire Irwin, attacking him with a butcher knife. He recommitted himself to Rockland, staying for nearly two years, and when he got out, he enrolled at St. Lawrence University in 1936, attending the theological school there. In addition to being a student, he also helped teach sculpting. Three months after he enrolled there, he took a trip back to New York City and the Gedeon's house, which by now was the East 50th Street address. Perchance, Ethel, who no longer lived there, was visiting since Joe Kudner was out of town on a business trip. When Irwin left to go back to St. Lawrence, he convinced himself that Ethel had moved back in with her mother and sister and that her marriage was in trouble. On March 24, 1937, Irwin was expelled from the university after beating a fellow student named Leroy Congdon after he broke a few of his sculptures. It's not clear exactly how Congdon had broken the sculptures, however. It was only three days until the murder. Irwin had provided the Chicago Herald and Examiner reporters with a detailed confession. I went to the Gedeon apartment. No one was home. Finally, Mrs. Gedeon came home. She was very tired. She asked me if I would take her dog out for a walk. I took him for a walk around the block and brought him back. I drew Mrs. Gedeon's picture to kill as much time as possible. Then in comes this little Englishman. She introduced him to me. He went to his room. I took just as long as I could on that picture, and all the time I was feeling her out about Ethel. She didn't tell me anything, though. She was holding out on me about Ethel and whether she was going to be there. She was holding out on me about Kudner and whether they had broken up. Then I said that I wanted to see Ethel. She said, Bob, Ethel isn't here, and it's very late. I said, I'm going to stay here until I see Ethel. All of a sudden, she flew at me and yelled, Get out of here or I'll call the Englishman. Well, I hit her with everything I had. I choked her. I strangled her. All the time, this damn Englishman was in the next room, just ten feet away. She died right in front of that room, just ten feet away. She put up a hell of a fight. I can't understand why she didn't bring down the whole town on us. I had Mrs. Gedeon by the throat, and I never let loose of that throat for 20 minutes. She fell back on the floor with her legs back over her head and her dress over her head. She was all bare. She scratched my face like nobody's business. When she was on the floor, I knew what the damn dog's place was in that family. My face was scratched. My hands were full of blood. 
I smeared it on her, on her face, and on her breast. I threw her in the bedroom under the bed. Finally, Ronnie came in. I was outside in the other room. She went into the bathroom and stayed there the longest time. I thought she was never coming out. I was in the first bedroom. I went in the kitchen and got some ordinary soap and made myself a blackjack out of it with a cloth. Suddenly, Ronnie came in through the bathroom door and I let her have it. The soap went all over the floor. It didn't have the slightest effect. I can very well believe she was drunk because she didn't put up any fight at all. I grabbed her by the throat and took her in the room. I did not attack Ronnie. I held her the longest time, just tight enough so that she could breathe. I didn't know what to do. The Englishman could identify me, but I didn't have anything against Ronnie. I kept Ronnie there until early morning, holding her just so that she could breathe. She asked me not to attack her, that she had just had an operation. I didn't know what to do. I could wait to see if Ethel was going to come in. I disguised my voice as well as I could, but it wasn't enough. Finally, she said, Bob, I know you. You're going to get in trouble if you do this. Then I strangled her. I ripped her clothes off. She didn't have much on, only a thin chemise. That wasn't the first time I had ever seen Ronnie stripped. I never had sexual intercourse with Ronnie. She went with a class of people who were way above me. She went with millionaire sons, and she didn't have any reason to be interested in me, except that I was interested in Ethel. I only used my hands, nothing but the pressure of my hands. I asked her where Ethel was. She said she was married to that kid Kudner. I held her a long time, at least an hour. I was holding her on the bed and strangling her. Afterwards, I went right out because she immediately became the most repulsive thing I have ever seen in my life when she was dead. It was like blue death just oozing out, a spiritual emanation just oozing out. Then I went in and fixed the Englishman. I just went in and gave it to him in the temple with the ice pick. I hit him once and he just kept on twitching. I didn't want to kill him. My original intention was to kill Ethel. When you get in a mix-up like that, you don't think what you were doing, and time means nothing. The whole night seemed like just a half hour to me. After I put the Englishman out of his misery, I went in and took a little clock and pictures that belonged to Ethel. When I did that thing, I never took any precautions. I knew I left my glove there. Whatever is coming to me, I will take. When I went out of the apartment, the last thing I did was to look around. The last thing I said to myself then was, Buddy, you did it. If I don't get the chair and I go to an institution, I want a dollar a week, because with that money, I can make someone work for me and drill me on visualizing. I want to develop myself. I killed Mrs. Gideon because she caught me in a rage. I did it before I knew it. I killed Ronnie out of necessity. I never wanted to get any one of them except Ethel. I wanted to kill Ethel because I loved her and I hated her. Even when I knew her before, when I made the bust of her, I was going to model her on a straight block, beheaded with her hair hanging down and her eyes closed. If Ethel had come in first, I would have killed her and nobody else if she had come in while I was drawing her mother's picture. I don't know whether it was hate or love that made me want to kill Ethel. My choice was to either die or put myself under pressure. If I did, that won't be the end of it. That cycle comes back. These people I killed aren't lost. Theirs are borrowed lives, and if I live, I will repay them. I only meant to borrow one life. I will repay those lives by developing that power of visualization, which is the next step in the evolution of the human race. My contribution to civilization will be along this visualizing line. Ethel affected my life more than anyone else I had ever met. 
Ethel worked for me a while in visualizing. She would say, can you visualize an eye, an ear, a nose? And I would. When she worked with me, I did twice as much as when anyone else worked with me. It is hard, monotonous, tiring work, and she got tired of it. Detectives Martin Owens and Frank Crimmins came to Chicago and went to the offices of Cook County Sheriff John Toman to have Irwin transferred to their custody so he could be returned to New York. On the flight, the detectives asked him a few questions about the crime, being particularly interested in why, exactly, he stole the clock. At this time, and all subsequent times he was asked this question, he seemed flustered and unable to vocalize exactly why he had done it. He seemed to have no qualms about being a murderer, but seemed offended at the idea that he was seen as a thief. The best answer he could come up with was that it was in front of him as he was strangling Ronnie, that the green glow fascinated him and resembled eyes to him. But other than this, he was reluctant to talk. Believing that his ex exclusive contract with the Chicago Papers meant he didn't have to talk to the police or the district attorney. On June 28, 1937, Irwin arrived back in New York and insisted on calling Frederick Wortham, his longtime psychiatrist, and having him present before he would speak to the police. He confirmed the details of the confession he had given to the Chicago newspaper, stating also that in his opinion he hadn't truly killed the Gideons. I believe those lives are not lost. They are borrowed, and I can repay them. I don't believe anything is lost, and all life is only a part of the divine life. Samuel Leibowitz was retained as his attorney. Leibowitz was a prominent lawyer, most famous for representing the Scottsboro Boys, nine black teenagers accused of raping two white women in Alabama. Although they had been condemned to death in both the initial trial and a retrial, in the end, Leibowitz had, had appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. Four of the teenagers were acquitted, and the death sentences on the others commuted. The others were, post were posthumously pardoned in 2013. Leibowitz was famous for the fact that none of his many, many clients had been given the death penalty. Preparations were made for the trial, and during this time, Wes Peterson, editor of Inside Detective, ruled that he felt Henrietta Koskiansky should receive the $1,000 reward his magazine had been offering for the person who most aided in the apprehension of Robert Irwin. While the killer had turned himself in, he said that he felt that if she had not first identified him at the Statler Hotel, that probably wouldn't have happened. And he was probably right. In September 1937, the trial was launched, and Leibowitz told Judge James Wallace that Irwin should under no circumstance be given the death penalty. In my opinion, he said, the man is as crazy as a bedbug. On his, on his side was Frederick Wortham, the psychiatrist most associated with Irwin, who also hoped that he could succeed where he had failed in the case of Albert Fish. District Attorney William C. Dodge, on the other hand, advanced his opinion that Irwin was not insane at the time of the murders and that he, quote, knew the nature and quality of his acts. The superintendent of Rockview State Hospital, Dr. Russell E. Blaisdell, agreed with Dodge, stating that, quote, while Irwin was suffering from a psychosis, that alone does not establish insanity. Henrietta Koskiansky said that she would testify that Robert Irwin was insane. She claimed he was childish and would become inconsolable upon the smallest misfortune and become overjoyed at the smallest boon. 
But in the end, it was ruled that a lunacy commission should rule on the matter of whether Irwin was insane or not. As stated by Quentin Reynolds in the 1950 book Courtroom, Everybody wanted Irwin to die. Had he lived 2,000 years ago, he would have been stoned to death. Had he lived in the days of the Inquisition, he would have been torn to pieces on the rack. Had he lived in the time of the Reformation, he would have been burned at the stake. But this was 1939. Why did everybody want Irwin to die? Why did it take every bit of legal wizardry that Samuel Leibowitz could command to keep the obviously insane Irwin from the electric chair? Bobby Flower, the ex-husband of Veronica, of Veronica Gedeon, left no doubt on how, on how he felt on the question of how the trial should turn out. Give me five minutes alone with Robert Irwin, and my debt to him will be paid. That scoundrel is accorded more attention than a celebrity, and is treated as though he had done something wonderful. Has the public forgotten his crime? Are they concentrating on his superb acting? Why, he should be sent to the chair so fast there should be no question on the workings of the law. I don't think Irwin is any crazier than I am. I can tell from his confession that he's sane because that's exactly how he talks. I would, I would like to beat every part of him until he could no longer cry out for mercy. He has it coming to him. In the intervening time, Irwin displayed the traits that had so typified his actions in the previous years at one moment threatening to murder prison guards, and only moments later, softly talking to a cat. By the time the Lunacy Commission returned, and the trial resumed on November 7, 1938, Dodge was out as district attorney, and the prosecution was taken up by a new district attorney, Thomas E. Dewey. It was proving far from easy to prove Irwin sane, even though the district, even though the district attorney maintained that this would be done. In the end, he pled guilty to three counts of second-degree murder in exchange for avoidance of the death penalty and, oddly, for the return of a pair of trousers found in the suitcase at Grand Central Station that had been found by Officer John Whalen the year before. Robert Irwin was sentenced to 139 years in prison, 99 to life for the murder of Frank Burns and 20 each for the murders of the two Gideons. He underwent a full psychological evaluation at Sing Sing Prison, was ruled, quote, definitely insane, and sent to Dannemora State Hospital on December 10, 1938. Irwin died in 1975 at Matiawan State Hospital. I'm uncertain whatever happened to Joseph Gedeon or Ethel Kudner, save that Joseph closes a upholstery shop, and Joe and Ethel had moved away from Queens. It's not even clear whether they ever returned there after they were advised to leave by police in April 1937. And that's the end of this episode. As always, a list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description, and photos associated with this week's story will be on my Instagram at Forgotten Darkness. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post it to the Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarkness77 at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, and you can DM me ideas there. I also now have a Patreon at Patreon.com slash ForgDark. That's F-O-R-G-D-A-R-K. Until next time... This is Andrew, signing off.
This podcast is a part of Straight Up Strange Productions. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.